Hello and welcome to Get Your Play On, the industry podcast for playwrights and theatre makers. I'm Sam Brady. And I'm Ginny Manning. For this episode, Sam spoke to Chris Foxen, Executive Director of Papa Tango and co-author of the book Being a Playwright. When it comes to new writing, Papa Tango are one of the most significant companies in the UK, offering opportunities and support for playwrights and theatre makers at all stages of their careers, including the prestigious Papa Tango Prize for Playwriting, the most recent winner of which was Shook by Samuel Bailey. Chris had lots of interesting things to say about the various programmes that Papa Tango run and about what makes a prize-winning play. So here's Sam talking to Chris Foxen of Papa Tango. So tell us a little bit about Papa Tango. So Papa Tango was founded um, 11 years ago now. So it was founded by three um, by three recent graduates from drama school, out-of-work actors, which I think is where about 95% of theatre companies come from, actors creating work for themselves. And, um, and when they founded it, all they knew was that they wanted to make new stories um, and to originate and create work. Um, I got involved in 2012, when it was still relatively early days, about two and a half years old, and we reformulated things. So we became a charity at that point. We made the um, Pampang New Writing Prize an annual event, um, and we started a range of new schemes, like the Resident Playwright Scheme, uh, Go Write, our participation engagement program, Write West, the large-scale strategic playwriting development program, um, a range of sort of initiatives, which I'm sure we can chat about in more depth as, as today goes on. Um, but the, uh, the sort of the, the thinking, the reasoning behind Papa Tango as it's grown and developed has always been what can we do to develop new stories and support early stage writers, especially people who might not otherwise have ready access to theatre or to professional resources. So everything we do we, at least in our eyes, we're doing because we can see it plugging a gap or meeting a need or offering something a bit different or reaching a community that's not necessarily currently got much provision. Um, so that means that the company has, has I think, um, grown and developed a little bit haphazardly in some ways, but in other ways, it's been absolutely true and consistent to its mission, which is um, to fulfill the motto, all you need is a story and that we go out there to try and reach people and help them see those stories come to stage. So within Papa Tango, what's your role specifically? Um, yeah, a bit of everything is my answer. The great joy of it is that I, I get involved in everything, really. Um, but I would say that I suppose my primary function is to give a strategic direction for the company. Um, so that is developing and devising new programmes, some of the ones I've mentioned. It's thinking through where we'll be in a year's time, in two years' time. It's identifying really what those gaps in provision are that mean we can continue to make a difference and to identify very clearly for ourselves and for others what the communities are that we're trying to serve and how we go about doing that. Um, but I also, I also get um, to get really involved in the creative aspect because all of those programmes that I'm launching and overseeing and all of the the administrative buck that ultimately stops with me 
only has meaning if I understand what our creative output is, how we go about working with our artists and shaping them. So uh, my colleague George will lead on the dramaturgical development of the shows. He will lead on um, things like creative direction, but I will always be involved in reading every draft and giving notes and doing creative research um, in coordinating the reading team and our assessment processes. Um, so there's a real there's a real synergy, I suppose, between our creative output and process and the strategic direction and operation of the company. And although I'm predominantly focused, I suppose, on the latter, it's entirely informed by the former. Right. So in order for you to provide the right kind of support, you've got to really understand what's going on. So I guess that means you've got to be very active in building relationships with playwrights and theatre makers. Absolutely. Um, and um, I'm, you know, I'm very invested in that. So uh, it's really important for us that we that we don't um, outsource, if you like, um, the work we do. So although we, um, we work with over 4,000 individual writers each year across the country, the majority of that is led by myself or by George. Um, we, um, we're still really invested in, in taking a, a big part in leading the courses, the workshops, um, the training initiatives, um, or the, um, the open application schemes. It's nearly always myself or George who are talking to the artists or the writers or the participants. Um, occasionally, we have to bring in a facilitator or an outside eye. But in that case, one or other of us still normally is involved in liaising with the artists whom they are supporting or working with. Um, but yeah, in a nutshell, it is really, really important for us that the people who are leaving the company are also the ones on the front lines. Um, and I think the great joy of being a relatively small organisation, even if we're growing, is that we can still have that kind of very close relationship with the people whose work we are serving. Sounds fantastic. So in terms of the various programmes you've developed, just take us through the headlines of what opportunities you offer. So I would say that all the work we do boils down to a very simple group, which is that playwriting should be open to anyone um, and that a pathway into seeing, um, seeing your work, your voice, your stories, given a professional platform, um, should be something that is unrestricted and accessible. Um, so our motto is really simple. It's all you need is a story. Um, and we try and make sure that all the programs we run are about recognizing and supporting people to tell those stories. So I'd say our flagship program to do that, um, the thing we're best known for, is the annual Papatango New Writing Prize. So that is now in its 11th year. Um, it was the first and remains indeed the only annual playwriting award in the country to guarantee a full production, publication, royalties, and a commission for a second play. Um, we have recently expanded it to include a national tour after its London debut production. Um, and we also are unique in committing to give feedback to every single writer who sends us a play if they request it, which about 97% of them do. Um, so the prize, this year it got um, just over 1,500 entries. That means that taken on an annual basis, um, we're the biggest playwriting award in the country. Um, something like the Bruntwood might get about 2,900, 3,000 submissions in a two-year period. We're therefore getting around 3,000 to 3,100 in a two-year period as well. Um, 
but unlike the Bruntwood or any other, we give that feedback to everyone who requests it. Um, and we do that because it's really important for us that the prize isn't simply about cherry picking one individual brilliant play and giving it this incredible launch pad. Um, it's because we want the prize to be a, a real investment in grassroots and emerging storytelling. And because we believe that with literary departments shrinking, with cuts to the development of new writing in, in recent years having had a real impact, um, a lot of writers never actually get to hear how their play is being judged. They never really get told what it is that an anonymous literary manager or producer is is basing their decision on whether to take a play forward or not on. Um, and so while our feedback cannot be extensive, it's only really a paragraph or so, what we hope it does is it articulates very clearly what we think is working, where we think it might be being held back or what could be strengthened, and how that would therefore help it maybe land with someone else in due course. Um, and we take great delight in the fact that every year scripts that don't necessarily win our prize but that we're, we're able to feedback, go away, get redeveloped, and then either come back to us and go on to win in future years or to reach the shortlist, or they get picked up by other places in their redeveloped form. Um, and as well, therefore, of supporting that very broad base of new plays from a really diverse range of artists, the prize is also an incredible opportunity for the winner. Um, so the writers who've been discovered, really, given their, their breakthrough debut production through the prize are people like Dominic Mitchell, who's since notched up a couple of smaller awards called BAFTAs, if you've heard of them. Um, Dawn King, who's Foxfinder, that we produced, has now gone on in well over a dozen countries worldwide and was given a West End um, production uh, by Bill Kenwright recently. Um, Tom Morton-Smith, who's... Oppenheimer was a great hit for the RSC and went into the West End. Um, Iman Qureshi, who's now um, developing a lot of really exciting new plays with a range of excellent companies. Um, there's a real range of artists who come through off the back of that, that production and publication that we guarantee. And I think that's a key thing. It's, um, it's really rare now for early stage writers to have a, a guaranteed path to production. Um, and, um, and that's something we feel very strongly about committing to. We believe the talent's out there, and we, and we say we will definitely see that happen. So if you put into the prize, within six or seven months, you know that that will go on in a full production and a national tour. It will be published. You will get royalties from it, and we will then commission you for a second play to give you ongoing, sustained support and to try and develop and push your playwriting voice that little bit further. So that's the prize, um, which is, as I say, kind of the really big annual flagship event we run. Um, but as well as the prize, we offer several different opportunities that hopefully support artists maybe in a slightly different position. So the resident playwright scheme we run every year, um, if the prize rewards someone who's got the training or the confidence or the resources to be able to write a full-length script and submit it to us, the residency is about trying to empower and develop writers who maybe aren't in that kind of relatively privileged position or aren't able to pull that out. So instead of the residency, we just ask for a short writing sample and a pitch of the play you would like to write. From that, we will give a seed commission of a few thousand pounds to help someone develop that play with our dramaturgy, our support. Um, and again, our 
our commitment is that eventually we will see that new play through to production and publication. Um, so, so far that's been uh, After Independence by Mason and Yambe that won an Alfred Fagan Award and was then um, developed and adapted with our cast and our director for BBC Radio 4, or the new play Hannah by Samantha Potter, which we put out on a 10-venue national tour that did really, really well. Um, so the residency is sort of aimed at, at serving a slightly different slice of writers, maybe, who need a bit more direct investment and support to be able to bring their story to fruition, to life. And then as well as those two schemes that are really focused on high-end, public-facing professional productions and publications for new artists, we have a range of schemes that are aimed at developing more grassroots level writers through training and through three performances. So um, Go Write consists of three playwriting courses in venues with no in-house literary departments. Um, so that's ranged from Plymouth to Taunton to Havant to Bury St Edmunds to Luton. Um, and we work with a group of 18 writers to develop an in-house new writing company group develop 18 original plays, at least one of which we then put on in a public sharing that's free for a local audience. Um, and the plays that have been developed through those courses have gone on to be produced at Hampstead Theatre, the Albert Lyon Theatre, the Vault Festival, the Brighton Festival Fringe, Edinburgh Festival. Um, and, uh, and hopefully that group continues to meet and to support each other and to have a writing community in an area that did not hitherto have much provision. Uh, we also run standalone adult workshops every month, um, which are completely free to attend. Um, we run those in a range of libraries and community centres. We also film and caption them so that they're available online for anyone to see. And those can be led by ourselves or by a range of specialist facilitators. Um, we do a lot of um, free writing workshops in state schools that take students through having their work developed, working with a professional writer, and then we publish the student scripts and books, give a copy to each writer, and they see professional actors come in and perform their work. So they get a flavour of what it is to be a produced and published playwright. Um, and then every other Thursday, um, we um, have an online live chat session uh, on our website. Anyone can come along and talk one-to-one -to, -one to myself or one of my colleagues um, through a little pop-up chat window. And you can ask anything you want about playwriting or theatre there or just have a whinge, and we're there to sort of chat, offer what advice we can, um, just be a sounding board with a bit of enthusiasm. So that's every alternate Thursday from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. And you just go on our website and you find the live chat, live chat page. Um, so we offer a real, a real range of activities. They span the country, um, uh, and all of them are completely free, open to any resident of the UK or Ireland, and in addition, if anyone has any needs in, in terms of mobility or access, we have a bursary pot available so that they're not only free, but we can fund people to travel or to have BSL interpretation or, um, or other access needs met. And what I love about everything you've just said, you know, the Papa Tango Prize is so prestigious and such a launch pad for the very best new writing. But at the same time, you've got this offering that goes right through from the person who's just starting out to the person who's ready to make that big sort of breakthrough. Absolutely. So you talked about the prize. You also talked about the residency. What 
are the criteria that you judge by then? Are they different between the prize and the residency? Yeah, well, to some extent they have to be, I suppose. Um, I would say that it's a nebulous thing always to kind of try and give advice on what it is that that even yourself is looking for, let alone let alone someone else. Um, and I'd be lying if I said there was a kind of a surefire kind of play or kind of voice that that stands out. There really isn't. I suppose. I suppose what I would say is that. Um, the prize obviously is is such a big competition. We have um, uh, this year we had uh, twenty seven different people reading for it, including myself. Um, and therefore, there's such a range of, of of tastes and backgrounds and experiences that come that come in. What we try and do is make sure that um, that plays get read by as many different readers as can be, so that individual subjectivity is Certainly not ironed out because I, I, that's not how art works. But certainly that there is a a range of potential champions for work who can see different things in a script, if you like. Um, so normally um, all plays get assigned one reader, which is anonymous, um, all anonymously done um, at the start, and about um, a third of plays then go through to a second reader. So that's that's a very generous number that get, we'll get a second reader going through it actually. Um, and our principle is anything that kind of has a glimmer of something, even if you don't like the play, even if you've actually not enjoyed it yourself, if there is a glimmer of something in terms of the voice, the characterization, and my, my general rule of thumb here is if you can put your finger over the name of a character on the margin of the page and you can then just read the line of dialogue and you can still know which character is speaking after you've read 10 pages or so. That, to my mind, suggests a writer who's inhabiting characters, who's got a gift with idiolect and with voice um, in what is fundamentally a dialogic medium that makes me feel like, OK, this person, this person can write dialogue, which is, which is what the kind of plays we put on fundamentally come down to, I think. And if you can write dialogue, I don't think it matters what story you're telling, what the subject is. Um, what kind of world you're trying to build. Um, it's all about can you can you hit the rhythms of speech in a way that makes me believe that there is a consistent set of voices interacting with each other. If you can do that, I will probably buy your story, whatever it's about. Um, and I think that that is sort of time and again proven by the fact that despite having so many different readers read these plays, Every year at the final stage, all 27 readers read the final long list of the plays and then they vote individually on them. And every year you see one or two plays start to come to the top um, and land time and time again, despite that real range of people. Um, and obviously you get one or two outliers. Occasionally you get one play that one reader has loved that no one else is actually voting for or putting on their top five lists. Um, but they're very few and far between, and what you do see is a real kind of a coming together, a coalescing. And I think that reflects that ultimately what we're all looking for is, is a play that, that has a commanding voice, that you go, this person has that dialogue, they have that character, I buy these people talking to me on the page. Um, and because of that, we've seen really different plays 
produced over the years through the prize. Um, I sometimes hear people talking about, oh, you know, the, the kind of Papatango prize winner, and, and I always go, I actually don't know what that is, because I think there's often an assumption that we're very drawn um, to sci-fi or dystopian plays, and actually, I think that's just because a couple of the really, really big hits we've had, like Foxfinder, have been sci-fi or dystopian, but actually, they're very few, they're actually a, a real minority. Out of the um, out of the 11 plays that we've produced through the prize to date, I think we've had maybe two or three that have been sci-fi or dystopian. Um, we've had plays that range from uh, four middle-aged women playing bridge in um, a community centre in the northwest, through to dystopias like Foxfinder and an alternate reality, through to futuristic sci-fi plays like Tomcat that are set in an imagined future world, through to really, really gritty heavily realist dramas like Shook last year, which is set in a young offenders institution in our, in our present day, um, through to plays like The Funeral Director that explore issues around gender and religion and spirituality and that are really knotty, thematically deep plays. Um, there's, a, there's a real broad range, I think, in there. Um, so, yeah, I cannot say that there's a certain kind of play that we are looking for, um, or indeed that there is a that there is a certain consistent style that we're drawn to. But I suppose if you had to pin me down, I'd say we do tend to do relatively traditional plays because we do tend to be drawn to stories with with the characters and dialogue that we that we can really buy into. But that covers such a broad range of voices from across the country. We have such a broad range of writers win the prize. Out of the 11 winners to date, um, it's uh, six male, five female, um, age range from the 20s to the 50s, located anywhere from rural Ireland um, to northwest England, down to rural Norfolk, into London, and into um, Gloucestershire and Somerset. Um, a, real, a real range, therefore, of identity markers and experiences coming in. Um, I would say that the residency we assess may be slightly differently. That's because we're not looking for a full-length play there that we're going to know we're going to be producing in a few months. So the prize, we have to take something that we know will develop it, and often the prize winners go through a long development journey and may change a lot, but we have to know that there's a core story there and a core voice there that we can trust, we can have ready to be a really good representation of that writer in a few months. Whereas the residency, because it's more open-ended and we're going to be commissioning something from scratch, we have more room there to be excited about the idea alone and to go with the voice of the writer in that short writing sample. But again, that short writing sample, we're going to want to be convinced that this is someone who can sustain really insightful, genuine characterization with really compelling dialogue. Um, so I think, you know, for what we look for in terms of the writers we're excited to work with, that's the kind of, I suppose, the aesthetic. But but I think that I think that really opens things up rather than narrows things down. So, in terms of the prize, how different does the final production tend to be from the version of the script that actually won the prize? It's a really good question, and I think a really important one because. Um, I think in theatre there can be a, a habit from the best will in the world to slightly obscure how much happens in between a first draft and a production ready happening. 
you know, and, and as an emerging writer, an emerging artist, or even an established one, you can go and see something brilliant on stage um, and go away and think, God, that was fucking amazing. How did they do that? I can never do that. How can I think to deliver it? Um, and actually, the secret is, well, the writer did, that's not what the writer, probably 95% of the cases, that's not what the writer wrote in their first draft. Um, what the writer wrote in their first draft may have been quite different, and it's through the collaboration of working with directors, dramaturgs, producers, actors in a room, a whole range of people, um, designers as well, of course, a whole range of people who come through to make what happens on stage work. Um, so I always think it's healthy to um, to be quite open about the fact that often the plays we put on, not always, but often, they go through a big, big process of development and they change a lot. Um, and so what you're seeing is not necessarily what won the prize. Um, what won the prize was compelling as a situation and compelling in terms of characterization and dialogue and made us really trust that this was a writer who could do something very special. But it's not necessarily that it was production ready. There's an element of reading between the lines. So yeah, it varies every year depending quite on how much work needs to be done and of course on what the writer wants to do and, and it's very much a relationship to make that happen. But I would say in any given year, we might expect to see, I don't know, maybe 25 to 30% of a script change. That might comprise seeing two characters cut and three new characters added. It might comprise going, okay, this start of the arc really works, but the second part gets very repetitive. So let's put all of these characters' journeys out individually. Let's um, just take character A and just put character A scenes back to back and see what character A's arc is, not as the play as a whole. Oh, what do we know? Character A is doing the same thing every time, so we need to rework their arc. That means we have to change this about character B, C, D, and D. Um, and suddenly, therefore, you end up with locations changing, the ending changed, um, a whole new character coming in, maybe. It really does vary. Um, with Shook last year, which is a fantastic play, um, but we added a character to Shook because it felt like we needed a fourth voice to come in and to to maybe act as more of a catalyst for some of the ideas that were that were perhaps not quite in full motion in the first draft. Um, and adding that character in unlocked a lot about the play. And actually, the play itself, the characters, the main characters, the main gist never changed because that was so strong. But that character coming in meant that the ending had to change a bit um, and the balance between the characters changed. Um, so, yeah, we're always, for us, what's exciting is not going, oh, this is, a, this is a good play, let's brush it on. For us, what's exciting is going, how do we make sure that this play is the best possible version of what the writer wants to achieve? and therefore the best possible representation of that writer's talent. Um, so yeah, every year it could be a lot of work, it could be a bit less work, it varies. So in that example of Shook then, at what point in the process do these changes tend to happen? Is it in rehearsals or...? Much earlier. For us it's really important that the work is done, um, that the work is mainly done before rehearsals, because I think... Um, Actors and directors, they can be brilliant at developing new scripts, but they're not necessarily, you know, it, it's an individual thing. Um, and a lot, actually, of directors, what they're brilliant at is visualising how a piece should look on stage. That's not necessarily the same as visualising what a piece could change to be on stage. 
some directors are brilliant dramaturgs, but but not all of them. You know, they're 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 related skills, but they're not the same. Um, so for us, it's really important that the development process happens a long time before rehearsals, because we don't want to be trying to tear something apart and build it back together in a handful of weeks. That's really risky and it's really exposing for the poor writer. Um, so we will start it very early on. And in fact, when we interview the shortlist for the prize, the anonymity principle ceases to apply when we have our final shortlist because we want to meet the writers, we want to chat with them, we want to make sure that our understanding of the play is, is on a level with theirs, we want to know what they want to see about their play and what kind of development or reworking would work for them, um, and, and to make sure that that's a working relationship that they, they would like to have. Um, and so we meet them and we learn about their play from them, and in turn, we make some suggestions about some of the potential areas of development that, that occur to us, and we see what they think about that. Um, and, and as soon as we have the winner, that process begins, really. And it fluctuates when the director gets appointed. The director will become involved in that development process. At some point, we will probably go into an R&D with actors for anywhere from a couple of days to a full week to do some improvisations, to devise some things to road test some scenes and see what works and what doesn't. Um, so the development process will incorporate a lot of different aspects and elements. Um, but, um, but yeah, for us, we want, we want to be really confident when we go into rehearsals that we've got something that's at least 95% of the way there so that it's really rigorous and really stands up. And then in rehearsals, you can make the production as good as it can be. It probably was a bit of a silly question, actually. I think even the most maverick writers and directors might think twice about adding an extra character during rehearsals. But um, nevertheless, a lot of change does often happen during rehearsals. So it's interesting to hear that you try to head that off. So, I, yeah, I think um, I think it all depends on your process, really. I think um, I think a lot of the change you hear about happening in rehearsals is when you're talking to to let's be honest, really well-funded organisations like the RSC or the NT that can afford an eight-week rehearsal process. You know, if you spend eight weeks in a room and the play is what an hour and a half, maybe two hours, um, two and a half if you stick an interval in. I don't really know that there's eight weeks worth of work you can do to make that play ready for an audience unless you start going into dramaturgy and developing it and exploring it. And that's a wonderful luxury to have, but I think it is also I think there's also a luxury from our point of view as a as an organisation that is we're a charity. Uh, we don't have core funding from the Arts Council. We exist on project to project grants and funding for the main part. Um, for us, therefore, we do three to four week rehearsal periods. We don't really we can't really afford to go in and do eight weeks, you know, unless unless the Arts Council starts to give us a couple of million a year or the 30 million a year they give the NT, you know, we, we don't have that. So what we do instead, we use our limited resources to invest really heavily in the script from an early point so that then when we go into the more expensive and more challenging process of rehearsals, it's as good as it can be. So, but, you know, if it wants to split their 32 million a year with us, <laughs> we'd be quite happy to look at bigger rehearsals. Yeah, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Um, so... You talked a bit about what makes a good script. What about those that are not so good? What would you say, having read a lot of scripts, 
are the common mistakes that we should be looking to avoid? I'd say the biggest one is not trusting your audience. Um, and by that, I mean a lot of plays that are even, often really well written. And you go, actually, you know, I'm buying these voices, these characters. I, I believe in them as people. Um, the story's exciting. But despite all of that, you're not trusting your audience because you're spending a substantial amount of your time explaining things. It's, it's that term exposition that gets banded around a lot. And I would say that some exposition is always necessary. We can talk about exposition as if it is, as if it is sort of anathema. And that we must, if anyone has any understanding of what's going on, it's wrong. No one should have a clue. You know, we need some exposition to get what the story is and who these people are. But it's a very fine balance. Um, and we don't need to know all the backstories put on a plate for us. Okay, um, Just because as a writer, you might know that this character two years ago went on a, um, went on a training course at their local Tesco and they hated it and that's why they, they gave up their job and have been unemployed since. We don't necessarily need to be told that in the first five pages. Um, and so our golden rule is, if any one character ever says anything to another character that that other character should already know or wouldn't be interested in hearing, then that character probably shouldn't be saying it. You know, you're probably saying it for the audience's benefit. But the thing is, that doesn't really benefit an audience because it bores us a little bit. So trust your audience. Audiences are clever little bastards, I'm afraid. Um, they will poke at things in plays. They will see holes. But they will also pick up clues. They will also figure things out. We all of us, when we go into a theatre, we're primed to be detectives a little bit. We're primed to read the room and what's going on. And that's part of the pleasure, I think, of getting to know these things and untangling it. Um, so, yeah, I'd say the biggest error writers can make, and it's, it's a lack of confidence, I think, in their own voice and their own writing, actually. It's almost humility. It's a case of... I want to explain these things to my audience and I don't necessarily trust that my use of subtext or implication or characterization is going to make the story enough clear. So I'm going to have to put it out there. But actually, don't do that. You know, believe that you have the skill and the ability to drip feed this information in a more interesting way um, and let the story emerge more naturally. And that will hook a reader much more effectively. Um, you know, don't rush to put your story on a plate for me. If you've got a brilliant twist that's going to come up 30 pages in, don't signpost it for me really heavily now because, okay, great, that tells me there's a brilliant twist, but it also takes away all the pleasure in reading it, which makes it less likely that I, as a reader, I'm going to stick around for it. You know, trust your writing to hold me by its own quality, by its own voice. Um, you know, and be, be, be a good editor yourself. And I'd say the other mistake writers can make is they can, they can write a first draft and in the sheer relief and exultation of completing that first draft, they can then rush it off to be read by producers or directors or literary manager um, just because they're so delighted it's out there. But the thing is, those people you're sending it to, they've really narrow time. All of us are underfunded. All of us are deluged with people sharing work they want us to read. And with the best will in the world, there is a limit to how many times a literary department or a producer can read a play, the same play or even different plays by the same writer. 
before they start to feel like actually that's it i've made my judgment i don't have the resources to give it a second chance and so i would say once you've finished drafting a play put it aside for a while share it with some friends doesn't have to be doesn't have to be professionals or people who you know are, are super experienced readers because they're just they're, these are the people who are going to be your audience just share it with friends Get some individual feedback from them. Don't get it as a group or, or the loudest, most confident person starts to steer everything. You know, meet these people individually. Don't get drawn into a discussion from your side about what you're thinking. Just let them talk. You know, hear what they have to say, whether you agree or not. Do that with five or six different people. If one person says something you don't agree with, chances are it's just a subjective or, or wrong opinion or a misread. But if three or four or five people are saying it or in some way, maybe that's something you want to have another look at basically get some get some test views on your script then go back and do a bit of a rework on it and a redraft before you put it in front of the industry opinion makers who you're actually relying on you know give your chance the best chance give your script the best chance to have been to have been put to have been you know stress tested a little bit um that those i think would be the two the two big slips that writers can sometimes make, um, which can mean that their script, however good it is, doesn't end up getting taken further forward. And, and that's a real shame. So some great tips in terms of writing, drafting, editing, and also in terms of seeking feedback. Um, but in your book, Being a Playwright, which I thoroughly recommend, by the way, um, you talk about how playwrights have to be savvy about championing their work as well as being talented writers. What do you think are the key steps to getting noticed and getting your work programmed? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I suppose, disclaimer, in the book we probably spent about 150 pages um, rambling on about that. So I'll do, I'll do my best to kind of compress it. Um, but, but apologies if this becomes a sort of a long waffling rant. Um, I would say, I'd say the, the foremost thing actually is um is understanding how people will read your script okay um it's being brutal it's understanding that it's always much more interesting to write something than it is to start reading it because when you're writing it you know all those rich ideas in your head you know the backstories you know all of this sort of world and this depth that you have built and constructed and that can be fantastic but remember, your reader doesn't have access to any of that. They only have the words on the page. Hence why, as I said earlier, I think a lot of writers can sometimes rush to try and signpost or flag all of that stuff up a bit heavily because they're worried people won't read it and therefore they've got to shovel it out on the page almost as a kind of a justification for what's good about the play. And that's why it's such a tricky balancing act because if you do that, you'll kill the reader's interest because it will just be really on the nose and didactic. But equally, if you don't find a way of conveying what is rich in the world and the characters you are showing, it's really hard for a reader to keep on reading and to justify that investment of time and resources. So I would say being a champion of your work is also the same as being a critic of your work. It's coming at your work with fresh eyes and going, I'm not going to sit and agonise over it line by line because if you, as soon as you start doing that, you start getting pulled back into the pleasure and the pain and the fascination of writing. And you don't want to do that. Just sit down, read your script, boom, 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 cold, 
read it as a canter. Don't resist the urge to get stuck in as a writer. Just try and read it and let it purely exist as you read it. And then think, what about the story is clear? What about the story is holding my interest, you know? And what about the story actually isn't necessarily hooking me? What is maybe a bit dull? I had great fun writing that long monologue, but actually it's got some great turns of phrase, but I just don't believe that that character would talk like that or it doesn't move the plot forward. It's, you know, it's fun for me. It's not fun for a reader or an audience. And once you figure those things out, you also share it with other readers. Um, and I would say, therefore, being the best champion you can be for your work is knowing what you have to change about your script for it to speak for itself, to be its, its own advocate. And I would suggest that is a really hard task, actually. And I think that's why writers have to be the really the writers who who build a career out of this, which is so hard. The writers who do that are not just the best writers. They're also the savviest writers in terms of understanding the process their script will go through, how it will be read and assessed and what they need to do to prepare it for that process. And I would suggest that, that that's really hard because that can just eat away at your confidence. It can gnaw away whatever you think is good about your script. So you've got to be able to do that and yet also remember to celebrate and remind yourself, no, no, that is a really good thing. That is what makes the story tick. Um, and that is what is good about it. And if I take that out because that's not so good, what's good is still left and shines out all the more bright. And once you've done that, you've got to be good about understanding how to share it, I would say. Um, sometimes, sometimes writers can make one of two mistakes. The first mistake is they think they can only send it to one producer or one company or one venue at a time, and that they sort of owe that producer or that venue or that agent or company however many months or even years to respond before they send it to someone else. And guess what? The likelihood is always that have a brilliant your work, it's not going to be picked up by any one individual. That's because these things are not in your control. You might be incredibly talented. You might have road tested the script. You might have developed it and been ruthless in your editing and your self-critique. And it might be fucking brilliant. But if it winds up a venue that's programmed for the next two years or that has several plays on the commission itself that it's already invested in and it wants to bring those out because it's put money into them, it doesn't matter, you know, your script's not going to fit. Or if it doesn't fit the other plays they've already programmed, they might reluctantly let it go. So as a writer, don't feel you owe anything to the producers or the programmers to whom you're sharing your work. You don't owe them anything, okay? So first mistake, don't just wait one by one for responses because that means your play is just going to get stuck in a drawer for God knows how long. Send it out to everyone who will accept it and do that at once so that you're not just hanging on and hanging on. The second mistake, though, that writers can make follows from that. It's in sending it out blind to absolutely anyone. And the worst way you do that is in a CC email, mass email to everyone. That just kills my desire to read your play because I just I don't feel like you've reached out to me or you've got any kind of thought for the work we do. Um, so I would say send it to absolutely everyone who you think is relevant, but the key credo there is that you think is relevant, okay? Because if a company only stages adaptations, 
there's not really much point sending them a play that is your own fresh original work. Um, equally, if a company states in its literary policy that it doesn't do translations, don't send them a play that you've translated. Okay? So spend a little bit of time researching new writing organizations out there. Maybe draw just a quick database for yourself of what their literary policies are. And then that means you can match your script for the potential producers and programmers out there. And you can say in a cover email, and as I said, make sure you reach out individually. It makes a difference. It's time consuming, I know, but it, it potentially accelerates your play getting read and getting into the top of the script. Um, top of the pile, send it to them um, with that cover email, reaching out in person and showing that you understand the work they make and that's why you've sent it to them. And that, that just reassures me and it makes it more likely I'm going to find the time to read it. Um, and then I'd say being the champion, it's just doing that on a rolling basis. It's understanding that, that the likely it is you are going to be fighting your corner for a long time before a producer, a programmer, a literary manager, or an agent takes up the companies. Um, and there's no shame in that, um, but you've got to go into this understanding that for X number of months or years, it's probably down to you to be, to be hustling that script out there, for you to be savvy about how you're sending it out and to whom, for you to understand the relationships you're building. You know, Maybe one time in a thousand, Someone sends their first play off on a random hunt, someone picks it up, goes, I love this, and then that person becomes their agent or becomes the producer who will look after them and champion them for others and get their foot through the door. But the likelihood is, even if someone picks up your script and goes, I really like this, let's have a coffee, or I really like this, let's produce it, that person's probably not going to be your champion for your next play, and that will come down to you again. So it's, it's recognising this is a really long-term game and just getting a foot through the door now is a relationship you're probably going to have to nurture and build while you're also hustling for new opportunities with different scripts as well. Um, does that make sense? It makes total sense. I think as writers, it, it's really useful to see things from the other side. One thing I often think, and I apologize if this makes some of our listeners feel sick, uh, it makes me feel a bit sick. But as freelancers, we are running a business and we've got customers and if we don't understand our customers world and their experiences how can we provide them with what they need to be able to engage with our work so so bearing that in mind would you encourage writers and theatre makers to volunteer to read for a prize or to get involved somehow on the other side of the fence to get to know that world better yeah i think it's always really really healthy um just that whatever form it takes, I mean, even if it's the, um, because let's be honest, reading is often badly remunerated. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real problem. Um, and if you can't therefore afford it or you're, you're reticent about the work that's involved um, with reading, even if you just get involved, say, taking paid work behind the bar in a theatre um, or doing front of house, um, anything like that, just being just being in a vicinity of people having conversations about creative decisions and understanding how an organization operates in terms of making these incredibly difficult decisions about how to support artists how to reach audiences how to program just being in that in that vicinity and overhearing or being part of that 
it, it makes a huge difference, I think, to your process and how you operate. Um, and that's, I don't think that's a cynical thing, you know. I, I, as you were saying there, I think I can understand all of us sort of having a slight perjure about the idea of, oh God, I'm a brand or I'm business or so on. And I, you know, I, I, I agree. That's not really why any of us have gone into the arts, is it? But there's a sort of a truth in there in terms of, um, in terms of whether you are commercial or subsidised. Even if you're subsidised, you're supported by public money, by taxpayers' money. If if that money is coming to you to make your work or support your work, then there's got to be an understanding of of the purpose behind it, and that purpose can simply be it's a brilliant story and it should be told. I I believe that is enough, but that purpose could also be actually this this tells a story that isn't being seen, or there's an audience for this work who are not necessarily being served in in a lot of areas or a lot of programming. Um, there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, and yeah, getting involved, understanding the sheer pressure that producers and programmers are under. You know, not we're not just sitting reading a script and going, if we see X brilliant scripts, we'll produce X brilliant shows. We can't do that. We have limited capacity of what we can put on. That therefore means there's all sorts of decisions and things to juggle that go into what we put on. The more you understand that, the more it won't necessarily change the work you write. I'm a big believer you should write for the story you want to tell, not for your preconceptions of what a programmer wants, but it will maybe help you understand how the process is going to work so that if a play doesn't land somewhere, it makes it a bit a bit easier to understand why. And it maybe helps you go, once you've told that story, okay, I can now figure out where maybe is going to be a good place to send this. You know? As I say, don't I think I think when writers try and second guess or, or or decide that there's a preconceived desire for a programmer, that can often end up with a, a poor quality piece of work. I think you need to tell the story you want to tell, but understand who then are the people to send it to, where is it going to have its best chance of landing or its best chance of success. And I would say if a story matters to you, it will matter to other people. You know, none of us are unique, none of our experiences are unique. I hate to say that. Um, you know, we, we always try and talk about unique voices. I don't think that's true. I think all of us have experiences that will resonate with other people. So if a story matters to you, it will matter to others. Be savvy about figuring out who, where those people are or how you go about reaching them. So, okay, we're having this conversation during the coronavirus lockdown. How are you doing with that? I mean, there's a lot of apocalyptic talk in the industry at the moment and a lot of people worried what are your thoughts about it and your hopes um well i'd say first of all um for anyone listening please please don't vote tory at the next election whenever that will be um none of us benefit from a, a government that is uh well that is a government in name only and, and has really messed up how they've handled the situation um yeah i think it's i think the sector is going to be damaged quite severely when we emerge from this. We're already seeing that. We're seeing organisations in the worst case go into administration or close. I think we will see quite a lot of public sector infrastructure potentially bought up by private sector and commercial theatre, which will get their hands on some brilliantly publicly funded spaces or resources that then they can put to private commercial use, which sickens me, but I think we're going to see that happen. And I think therefore we will see we will see the shortfall in provision, especially in new writing. I think we will see that 
increase in the short term and potentially lasting on for a generation. Um, I, I wish I had a more positive message there, um, but I think it's important to be honest about these things because when we're not honest about gaps in provision, we pass the buck for new stories or new artists struggling to emerge onto the individuals. We make it out to be a, oh, well, if your script's not going on or you've not succeeded or you're not earning a living from this, presumably you're not quite good enough. And we take that sort of, we imply that kind of competitive model. And it's, it's bullshit, really, frankly. Um, the sector is so stretched, there simply isn't enough provision for all the talent that's out there. We can't pretend there is. And I think it does a disservice to our artists and our audiences if we try and if we try and skate over that. Um, so I think we at Papatango are trying to be really clear-sighted about the fact that there are going to be more gaps, there's going to be more shortfall, it's going to be harder for writers to be to be produced and develop a career in the next few years than it has been even up to now. And so what we're focused on, Sam, is trying to figure out how we can generate new opportunities to address that. And I don't have, you know, we launched a series of, um, of initiatives immediately in the shutdown and we didn't know how long it would last that helped support several new writers uh, that generated some new online plays that are free to watch that got um, a bunch of new scripts published um, and that also generated a lot of um, plays in the mobile library and circulation and so on. But as well as after that initial sort of response, what we're now focused on is taking a bit of time to think, what can we maybe put in place that means that in a year or two years or three years, we're generating work or providing opportunities that are a strategic intervention or resetting some of what's about to be lost. And those conversations are still ongoing. We don't have anything to announce right now. But it's really important for us, as I said at the start of this conversation, that, that we understand that the work we're making has a particular remit or serves a specific focus and offers something that maybe is missing. And I think that attitude is, is more important now than ever. So we're going to be trying to launch several new programs in the, in the next year or so. Um, that may also mean that we suspend some of the things we're currently running and adjust them and try and give them a different facet um, because because we have to be more strategic in how we go about redressing the shit show that's about to unfold. Well, it's great to know that organisations like Papatango are thinking ahead and trying to support us in the best way you can. And I also appreciate your honesty in that answer. Would you say... In some ways, it feels like new writing has never been more important. I think that's really true. But what I would say is, I also think it's important writers don't feel under pressure to create the kind of the great lockdown masterpiece. Um, <laughs> you know, I suspect the great lockdown masterpiece is one of two things. Either Carol Churchill's already written it and we didn't know, um, or it's going to be written in about 10 years by someone who right now is a disgusting little pipsqueak and we've never heard of <laughs> Um, you know, I think it takes a long time for these sorts of things to settle. Um, so I think the importance, as you say, is stories. Stories matter. You know, I'm not all you need is a story. We believe in that now more than ever. But that story, I don't think, has to be defined by our current situation. Um, and I think writers, as I said before, if you want to go away and you want to write a fantastical story that's nothing to do with this, with this miserable, difficult time, please go away and do it. I would love to read that, you know? Um, so 
I, I completely agree with you. And I think that the important takeaway there is that writers, therefore, have never been more important than ever. And that means that, that what a writer wants to tell as an individual, it's all about that. So basically, what you're saying, Chris, is that you don't want to spend 2021 reading 2000 lockdown monologues. Is that? I mean, if you know, if your lockdown play, if you do, if you do the testing of the lockdown script that I've talked about, if you know, you send it out to lots of people to read, you get notes and feedback, you're your own worst critic, you test it through that, you you rewrite, you redraft, and you go right. I've taken it through all the stages it needs to go, and it's brilliant then yeah, send it to us, because maybe you're going to write the lockdown masterpiece eight years before I'm expecting to see it. But um, but I'm certainly saying don't do that unless you really, really feel feel that is your story and that's what you want to say. <laughs> no. Otherwise, you know, don't feel under any... There's no expectation from us to see that. <laughs> Thank you. That's very clear guidance. So, Chris... It's been really great talking with you and thanks so much for coming on. No, my pleasure, Sam. Thank you for yeah. having me. All right, take care and best of luck with all your projects. Thank you. You too, mate. So that was me talking with Chris Foxen. Chris, uh, along with artistic director George Turvey, has really built something special at Papa Tango, hasn't he? Knows what he's talking about. You know, Papa Tango are really important they provide amazing opportunities. Shook by Samuel Bailey, which was the winner last year, they obviously worked really, really well with Samuel Bailey to get, get it to what it was. And um, they got the best performances out of their actors. And it was just a really brilliant play. And I think that that shows you what you can aim for by you know get, getting involved with Papa Tango and sending your play in when they have their annual competition. Yeah, one of the things that impressed me um, from talking to Chris was this is an organisation whose mission in life is to help us to make great work. Yeah. You know, if you're not engaging with them in some way, then you're really missing a big opportunity, I think. Yeah, definitely. And likewise, you know, the book that they wrote as well is an absolute cracker in terms of yeah, playwriting. Is. Yeah, because it covers about every aspect of being a playwright, not just the writing. And that's yeah. something that we often overlook, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think one of the main things about that keeps coming through from these interviews is not to pigeonhole yourself as just being a writer, that you can become a theatre maker, mm. um, a collaborator. A lot of it is just finding the right people to work with and don't be frightened to do that. And also don't be frightened to increase your own skill set and have confidence in making decisions that will get you working where you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Papa Tango Prize, I mean, that's one thing. If you can get shortlisted for that or win it, you know, then that is an amazing thing. But even if you just enter it, you're guaranteed feedback. Yeah. That That's good. That's something worth worthwhile that yeah. you're guaranteed to get something back from it. Um, but also it's the fact that they offer support of one kind and another through your full career as yeah. well so um That's yeah it's invaluable. worth sort of looking at that yeah um i thought it was a good point you made about the coronavirus masterpiece it's a real quandary i think at the moment for writers isn't it it feels a bit a bit too soon to write insightfully about lockdown but then it feels weird to be writing about the normal world world as if you know none of this is actually happening yeah absolutely and, and some opportunities are actively seeking out our response to it and others are saying do not mention it um, but yeah, certainly in the future, um, well, it's kind of a, it's an interesting creative challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
So that's all for this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends, share it on social media, and if you've got an iPhone, please find us on the Apple Podcast app and give us five stars. It makes search engines like us and it helps new listeners to find us. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. Until then, keep safe and well. Bye for now.